1 Chronicles 18. Are you guys there? I just want to read a few verses. I want you to follow me as I read these verses. We're going to read a couple from chapter 18, one from 19 and one from 20. And then we'll pray and we'll get into the whole meaty text after that. So 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 18 verse 6 says, Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Verse 13. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons, David also put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Chapter 19, verse 13. Be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in His sight. Chapter 20, verse 8. And these were born to the, uh, to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And Father, we pray as we get into uh, this section and appropriately look at uh, some battles on this day of remembrance, that, Lord, you would bring our remembrance back to our victor, Jesus. Lord, that we would be reminded that we have a king who's won the victory for us, and that would motivate us, Lord, to follow him. Lord, we thank you so much that you want to communicate to us. Lord, we thank you for that promise. If we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so we pray as we approach your word, Lord, that we'd have a meekness of heart to receive it. And that we would truly draw near to you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. Now, chapters 18 to 20 are really kind of a summary sermon of 2 Samuel chapters 8 through 21. Aren't you glad we're not trying to cover all those chapters today? And so if you remember 1 and 2 Chronicles, the author of Chronicles, we don't know who it is, maybe Ezra, but we don't know. But the author of Chronicles is actually kind of giving us a list of sermons, a series of sermons about the history of Israel. And so what he's done is he's condensed all those chapters in in 2 Samuel down to just these three chapters. And he's wanting his audience, the first people who read this, he's wanting them to remember the promises that we just read in chapter 17 last week. The promises that God made to David. When David wanted to build God a house, God says, no, David, actually, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all the world through your seed. That you're always going to have someone who reigns on the throne over my people. And of course we know this side of the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That that king, that descendant of David is Jesus. But in their day of course, uh, a couple thousand years before the time of Christ. In their day, when they experienced this, they were just those who had been in captivity had been brought back to captivity, had had just begun to see Jerusalem be rebuilt. They, They live in a time when there is no king on the throne. They live in a time when they're surrounded by enemies, and they're probably feeling a bit insecure. 
And so the author is wanting his first audience to remember the promises and, uh, that God's made to David, remember the victories that God gave David in the past, so that they could have a hope for the future and find strength for the present. And so in a very real way, this is what God wants to do with us today. He wants us, as we read these things, to see the victory that he brings through his king, his chosen king. In this context, 1 Chronicles, it's David. In our context, it's Jesus. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, as we sang today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at, with each chapter, a different element of what God has provided for his people through the victories of his chosen king. And if you have your notes near you, you can uh, follow along with those as well. So let's pick it up in chapter 18, verse 1, and we're going to see, first and foremost, that God, through David's victories, God provides for his temple. Look at verse 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. And then he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Keep that in mind, brought tribute. And David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath. And he, as he went to establish his power, that is, Zobah went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough for them with, for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians began, uh, became David's servants, and notice again, and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he goes. So, so what we see here is David actually attacks. He actually is intentional about pursuing these kind of competing powers and disarming them. There should be a, a map on the screen and you can kind of see where Jerusalem is and red arrows pointing in different directions. So you, you kind of get a picture of, is there no map on the screen somewhere? We'll, well, eventually there'll be a map on the screen. And when you see that map on the screen, there'll be arrows that point all around Jerusalem because this is kind of what's being described. There were these people who were trying to uh, get into the land that God had given to Israel. And, and Israel's having to sort of fight them off. David's having to fight them off. And I, and I like this because what's interesting about this is David isn't kind of waiting until they attack him. He's going after them. There you go. Do you see it? Yes. Great. Now, it, what's interesting about this is that what David did through aggression, through military might, Jesus did through his submission to God's will. We were surrounded by enemies. God took on human flesh in the form and the person of Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He conquered those enemies. In fact, it's interesting. Even in the idea of being intentional about this, listen to this. Remember when Jesus asked Peter, when he says to Peter, hey Peter, who do men say do I am? And Peter gives the, the different answers. And then he says to them, well, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? Peter answered Jesus saying, you are Messiah. That is the Christ, God's chosen king. The son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, notice, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, do gates attack? 
No, gates defend. And so when Jesus uses this picture of the gates of Hades, he's saying, this rock, Peter, this pronouncement that you made, that, that I am the Christ, that God's chosen king, that I'm the son of the living God, this pronouncement, in this pronouncement, there'll be power to literally storm the gates of hell and set captives free. How did Jesus bring that to pass? Listen to this, Colossians chapter 2. It says, Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us. That's the record that the law condemns us because we've broken God's law. And took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. This is what Jesus has done for us. Now you say, okay, that's, that's great. He fought. Well, how, how does this, what does that have to do with this army in the temple? Well, in David's day, if he's going to see the temple built in Jerusalem, he needs two things. He needs materials, which we'll talk about in a minute, and he needs security. He can't build a temple when you've got people attacking you all the time. And so he brings in security, just like Jesus has done for us. Through Jesus' death on the cross, do you realize, through his death on the cross, he made a way for you to be forgiven for every law you've broken against God. And the same way when someone sins against us, we, if we choose to forgive, we have to absorb the pain of that sin. In a, in a cosmic sense, in a real, all-humanity sense, Jesus absorbed the pain of our sin, the suffering of our sin, the guilt of our sin that, that is shown to us by the law of God. And that's the very thing that Satan uses against us, is the fact that we're guilty. You know why? You know why he can use that? Because we are. But because Jesus died, he's taken that away. He's disarmed what the enemy's weapon is against us. Now, what does David do? Verse 7. And says, And David went and he took the shields of gold. These are kind of the things he's won from war. That were on the servants of Hadadizar, and he brought them to Jerusalem, and also from Tibhath and from Chun, cities of Hadadizar. David brought a large amount of bronze, which Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars, and articles of bronze. So the author of, he, uh, of Chronicles is looking forward. He's saying, hey, this war, here's what happened with this war. They collected these riches, and with the bronze that they collected, they actually made implements that were used in the temple for worship. The bronze scene where the, the sea would have been where the, the, um, uh, where the priests would have washed themselves and getting ready to make sacrifice. Interesting. Weapons being transformed into vessels for worship. Keep going, verse 9. Now when Tao, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadaram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war uh, uh, with Tao. And Hadaram brought with him all kinds of articles of gold, silver, and bronze. He brings these to David now. Keep this in mind. He's saying, here you go, David. Thanks for fighting. Thanks for beating our enemies for us. And verse 11 says, And King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold he had brought from all these nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zariah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Do you see what David's doing here? 
David has taken all the bounty that as king he could have taken for himself. And he's dedicating all that into the building of God's temple. That's what he's doing. This is glorious. There's something amazing about this. Because David wanted to build a temple, God says, no, no, I'm going to build the temple. I'm going to provide the materials. How does God provide the materials? Through the battles that David goes through. So even though David will, will see, too, that, that the reason David wasn't allowed to build the temple is because he's a man of war. He had blood on his hands. And God wanted his temple to be built by a man of peace, Solomon, because it's a temple where we have peace with God. It's the place where we meet with God and have peace with God. But still, there's this reality that God graciously lets David be involved. And it is gracious. God doesn't need David to do this, but he's involving David in this process. Now you think, why is this important? I know some of you are thinking, oh, he's going to hit us up for the building fund. I knew it! He'd wiggle it in there somehow. No, I'm not. I'm not. Here's where this is important for us. Listen, we're talking about the temple. Here's what the scripture says about the temple. Here's the temple in a New Testament sense. Listen. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives among you. You yourselves are that temple. So when we read this truth, this, this reality that, that the author of Chronicles is trying to encourage his people with, we know that the Holy Spirit wants us to be encouraged with, that God uses our battles and the gain we bring from those battles to build God's temple. Us. You know, you guys probably have heard this idea or this term edify. You guys heard that biblical term edify? You know what that word means? It means to build up. It literally means to build according to plan. So here's the thing you need to understand. The, 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 the battles that you're going through, the, the things that you're gaining from that, those aren't just so you can go, gosh, I'm a lot smarter than I used to be. Those are so that you can use those to build up the rest of the body of Christ. This is what God's doing. Because our King, Jesus, won the victory for us. We can be guaranteed that whatever we're going through, God's going to use for the good of all His people. Romans 8.28, look it up. Now, what happens next? Verse 14, chapter 18. So David reigned over all Israel and administered justice, I'm sorry, judgment and justice to all his people. Wow, that's a big statement, isn't it? David's reign, according to what Chronicle says here, brought justice for everyone. Now, in a very real sense, David's only demonstrating justice for all. Because, obviously, even the, the, uh, the first readers of this would have known, okay, uh, injustice was still a part among God's people. Because of their continued injustices and their unwillingness to repent, God brought judgment on them and sent them into captivity. So they're not naive to the fact that they don't live in a time when justice is perfect. But, but the author wants them to see, the Holy Spirit wants us to see, that David represents a time when there's actually going to be justice for all. That time for us is when Jesus comes back. Now this is interesting because what David did temporarily, Jesus will do forever. Listen to this. Great verses from the book of Revelation. You guys have heard these before. But I want to read them again. Verse, uh, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. The writer says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among His people, and He will dwell with them. In other words, we're the temple. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We look forward to that day. Amen. Until that day, here's what we do. Because we know Jesus, when he returns, is going to bring that kind of justice, what do we do? We seek to demonstrate that justice now. Mm-hmm. And how we treat people. And how we deal with circumstances. Now, let's not be naive. Followers of Jesus, let's not be naive. We are not going to bring in perfect righteousness or justice on this earth. We're not going to be able to do it. But let's also not be lazy or selfish. Let's be willing to demonstrate the justice of God. And the justice of God is not just bad people get punished. The justice of God is things as they ought to be. People being treated as they are, image bearers of God. Justice is when we we see... Uh, stuff that's wrong and we want to not just stop it, but correct it. We want to bring reconciliation. Now we know this side of heaven, it's not going to be perfect. But because we know we're going to be with the Lord when He returns. We know He will bring justice here. What do we do? We pursue it. Now, that's the thing. God provides for His temple. He dis, he, our king has disarmed competing powers. Our king has dedicated everything for our gain. Our king has demonstrated justice and will bring justice for all. This is what God does through his victory. Isn't this amazing? Can I ask you a serious question? Can you find this anywhere else? Seriously. We, we want this. We, we, make, we, we think we, we politicians promise this to us. We try, to, we try to organize our way towards this. But do you know of any other one who can promise to bring this other than Jesus? But why do we trust Jesus to be able to bring this? Because Jesus didn't just talk about justice. He lived as the just one. The perfect one. And he lived in a way to show us what justice looks like. What righteousness looks like. And he said, listen, because of there is unrighteousness, he would have to die. That unrighteous ones would have him crucified. And he predicted that, and it happened just as he predicted. But what happened after he died? He rose from the dead. He conquered death, proving that injustice cannot stop him. See, we read these verses about the people of Israel and about the battles that their king fought and won from them and they were meant to be encouraged but us even more so because we don't serve a king who's dead and stay dead like David we serve a king who's alive folks we're his temple and he provides for his temple chapter 19 verse 1 Let's look at the second thing that is provided through the the victory of the king. That is that God exposes his enemies. Now this is an important thing. And I I really want to call uh, your attention if you are still in a place where you're not sure if you believe in Jesus or not. Maybe you like some of the principles that we're bringing out. or the, you, you, you like what you see in the way we try to love each other here in this church, but you're not sure if, you've, if you're ready yet or you're willing yet to commit your life to Jesus. I really want you to pay attention because this is really about you. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And it happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, he died. And his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will show kindness to Hannah, the son of Nahash. Because his father showed kindness to me. Now we don't know when this happened. 
There's no other record of, of, of uh, uh, Nahash showing kindness of David other than this reference. But it says, So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Anon in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. So they're coming with this act of kindness. So what happens? And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, Do you think that David really honors your father? Because he sent comforters to you? Did not his servants, did the servants not come to, to you to search out and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved them, which is a, a humiliating thing to do to a Jewish man. Shaved them. In fact, uh, Samuel tells us they only shaved half their beard off as well. Shaved them, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. Now, I don't know if any of you have had the humiliation of being pants in public. I did youth work for 12 years. It's happened a few times. That's kind of like, oh, I'm embarrassed, red-faced. This is a shame that you cannot imagine. Having to walk miles and miles back as you're chased out of a city with your private parts showing everyone. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing even to say, isn't it? This is what they did. And so what happened, so, so some, uh, some, then some went and told David, verse 5, uh, about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait, Jer- Jericho, until your beards are grown, and then return. So, so what happens? David's act of kindness. I want to show this neighbor of mine who, who, who I could wipe out. In the province of God, I could easily wipe them out, but I'm going to show kindness to them. I'm going to love them. What do they do? They reject that kindness. Does that sound familiar? Because this is what happened. God describes this. The Bible describes the sending of Jesus as the kindness of God. And what has the bulk of humanity done? Reject him. What did we do until God opened our eyes? Rejected him. He was naked too. Guys, we need to understand something. That, that this, what's going on here is, is, is for us to think about how God's enemies are exposed. They're exposed because they reject the kindness that God offers through His King. Verse 6 says, And when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syria, Ma'ak, and from Zoba. So in other words, instead of humbling themselves like, oops, we shouldn't have done that, they go, let's get a bigger army and wipe this guy out. We can defeat God's chosen king, they think. So they hire for themselves 32,000 chariots and with the kings of uh, Makkah and his people who came and camped before Mediba. And also the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. Now what happens? Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And then the people of Ammon came out and they put themselves in battle array before the gates of the city. And the kings who, were, uh, who had come were by themselves in the field. So you can kind of see like you've seen in old war movies where the soldiers are all kind of gathering around and the kings are on the outside kind of watching the fight. And when Joab, verse 10, saw that the battle lines were against him uh, before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and he put them in the battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. And they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then Joab says this, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Do you see the picture? David shows kindness. 
to the people of Ammon. The Ammonites return it with shame and then pick a fight. And so when David sends the soldiers to go out and fight, their armies are not just the Ammonites, but the other surrounding nations that they hire, and they surround Israel. So what do the Israelites go? Oh, forget it. God's not with us. We quit. No. What do they do? You get my back, I'll get yours. That's what they do. You watch my back, I watch yours. Here's what they say, verse 13. Be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may God do what is good in His sight. What do they do? They resist together through faith in God's sovereign goodness. What happened when Jesus was crucified? His disciples thought, what just happened? What just happened? We've lost. All of the enemies of God's people surrounded Jesus, had him crucified. If he loses, how can we make it? Then three days later, he rises from the dead. And what do his people do? What do the disciples do? They go, how can this be? What happens? And finally, Jesus convinces them, no, 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 it's me, I'm alive. With many appearances, many conversations, the resurrected Jesus made himself known to the apostles. It's historical fact. And he tells them, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And they do what he says. They wait in Jerusalem and they pray. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts chapter 1 or Acts chapter 2. What happens? They are filled with power and they go from 120 people, pretty scared people, to 3,120 people. God brings a great victory. In fact, if you remember, there's 120 people surrounded by people who are mocking them because they're all praying in tongues. And Peter, with boldness, I can almost picture him saying, okay, you watch my back, I'm going to preach over here. And he starts saying, hey, we're not drunk. This is the Holy Spirit that was promised by the prophet Joel. It was sent because of the Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And if you'll repent and believe and be baptized, you can receive the Spirit as well. And you read the book of Acts and you see these cowardly fishermen who wanted to give up on Jesus even after he was resurrected. Once they're filled with the Spirit, what happens? They endure pain, hardship, difficulty, death, and God grows His church like crazy. Why? Because they resisted together through faith in God's sovereign goodness. They knew they were going to suffer, but they had each other's backs And they kept going. Now in this, going back to Chronicles, what's happening? In this, these guys are willing to fight. And so what happens? Verse 14, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. So Joab went to Jerusalem. In other words, they start running away. God's given victory right away. They were surrounded, but they, they, had the, and they thought they had Israel surrounded, but they were losing. So look at verse 16. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river. And Shofak, uh, the, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before him. In other words, let's get some more guys to help us fight Israel. And it was told David, and he gathered all Israel crossed over the Jordan and came against them and set up a battle ray against them. And so David had set up in battle ray against the Syrians. They fought with him and the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and killed Shofak, the commander of the army. 
And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. And so the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. Now there's something great here. Because David de destroys these guys. David shows kindness. They fight against him. He destroys them. They get a bigger army. He destroys them again. And what would you do? Hey, if I was David, I would have just wiped them out. But what does David do? When they're, when they're asking for conditions of peace, David makes peace with them. This is really important. Because Jesus, listen, Jesus used a similar scenario to describe what it means to be his follower. Specifically, to describe what it is to count the cost of being his follower. Listen to this. Luke chapter 14. Listen to this. I'm reading for, from uh, the New King James. I'm not sure what's on the screen, but just you'll figure it out. Luke chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus is speaking. He says this, he uses this analogy. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still great off, a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. What a weird analogy. Here's why he uses it. Jesus was clear, the New Testament is clear, that before we decide, before we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus and say, Lord, you're worthy to be followed, before that, we are enemies of God. You go, oh, come on, no, no, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm here trying to figure out God and trying to learn about God. I'm not an enemy of God. Yes, unless you've been born again by God's Spirit, unless you surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Christ, you're an enemy of God. Now let me be clear, God doesn't want to be your enemy, but you're an enemy of God, and you have to think about something. Can you go to war with God and win? Can you go to war with God and win? Because if you can't, you best be thinking about conditions of peace. And I got great news for you. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He died to make conditions of peace. See, David, Israel's king, showed great mercy and patience by saying, I'm going to make conditions with peace with these guys who should be wiped out. And even more so, Jesus does that with us. See, when we have enemies, we go, okay, I'm, going to just, I'm not going to take vengeance. I'm just going to keep my distance from my enemies. But you know what God does with his enemies? He loves them. He died for them. He took us who were enemies and he made us sons and daughters. He didn't just say, I want, I'm going to destroy you. But he says, I'm going to adopt you into my family. Hey, I ask you again, are you going to find that deal anywhere else? Are you going to find that truth anywhere else? This is what God provides for us through the victories of our king. Lastly, chapter 20, almost done. Verse 1, it says, And it happened in the spring of the year, at the time kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. That phrase, at the time in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, does that sound familiar? If you've, if you've read the scriptures, that would sound familiar to you. It's because you probably would have read it in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel when 
uh, when David goes out to battle, or when David should go out to battle, but he doesn't. See, see here's what you need to know. Between verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 2 of 1 Chronicles 20, there's this whole section that's, that's missed out that's in 1 and 2 Samuel. You know what it is? It's the time when David stays home and ends up sleeping with Bathsheba. And then actually has, she gets pregnant, so he actually has Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. You guys know the whole sword story. And then he sits on that for a year until Nathan the prophet says, Dude, what are you doing? You're the man. You need to repent. Now, the author of Chronicles skips that all out, goes right to verse 2, follow me, verse 2. Then David took their king's crown from his head, and he found it to weigh a talent of gold. Some people think this might be inaccurate, because that would be 75 pounds on your head. Who knows? And there were precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, and he put them to work with saws and iron picks and axes. And so David uh, uh, did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. In other words, this great victory at Rabbah of Ammon. Now why doesn't the author of Chronicles tell us about the junk with David? Is he trying to ignore that? Is he trying to, hopefully, the, his, hoping his readers won't know that? No, his readers would have known this that very well. They would have known all that history very well. This is why. Because the author is not so concerned with David's worth as he is concerned with God's faithfulness to David. This is important. There's a principle here that I think God wants us to see, Okay? He wants, the, the author of Chronicles wants the generation that read this for the first time to have their confidence in the victories God provides more in the failures of his people. Do you, do you know what I mean by this? I, I see this happen all the time. That we, because as, as, as even as Jesus followers, we fail daily, don't we? We, we mess up. We don't do the things we know we should do. We do the things we know we shouldn't do. All the time. And because we fail, when God says, look, I want you to trust me, we go, I want to trust you, Lord, but I fail. Do you know what that is? It's us having more faith in our failure than in God's ability to give us success or victory. I know when I, this principle began to really sink in with me was the first time I was praying about uh, leaving the youth work that I was doing and going to plant a church. And I was really wrestling. Should I do it? Am I hearing right from God? Am I hearing from God? And someone said to me, look, you're, you're stressing out about this. You need to have more confidence in God's ability to speak than your ability to hear. Mm. See, see, listen, being a Christian, listen, being a Jesus follower means your confidence is no longer in you. This is why Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. Your confidence isn't in you, your confidence is in him. Lord, you've got to do this. You've got to make this happen. And I really believe that the author of Chronicles is wanting God's people to be encouraged in this. Look, forget about the failures. He's not saying, go ahead and sin, it doesn't make a difference, or go ahead and fail, nobody cares. No, take those failures to God and receive forgiveness. But focus on what God provides Focus on what the king does. Listen, we are in a battle ourselves. And we need to understand this. The Bible says in the book of Galatians, listen to this. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, So I say to you, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. 
that you won't be, uh, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants. That is God's Spirit. And the Spirit gives us desire that are desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Now, what, what the author is saying there, and I quoted from the NLT on purpose, but what the author is saying there, listen, is he's saying, Paul's saying, if you are trying to win this fight that you begin to experience when you become a Christian, if you're going to try to fight this on your own strength, you've already lost. Now, now if you aren't a Christian yet, you might be thinking, fight, I don't understand what he's talking about. You need to understand this. To become a Jesus follower is not to begin a holiday. It's to begin a holy war. To become a Jesus follower is to be changed on the inside. So that when you really pretty much just wanted to do what you wanted to do, when you put your faith in Jesus, now you want to do what he wants you to do. But you still also want to do what you want to do. And there's this conflict. How do we win that conflict? Holy Spirit, be my guide. As we sang this morning. Holy Spirit, give me the power I need to follow after Jesus. Jesus said that's the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point us back to Jesus and to apply in our lives all that Jesus has accomplished for us. You see, what the author of Chronicles wanted for his people, I believe God wants for us. He wants us to stop being so focused on our failures. Listen, we fail... Keep short accounts with God. Admit your failures to God. Admit your sins to God. Confess those things. Receive forgiveness. But focus on Him. This is how we win the battle. Lord, You can do this. Not by my, my might, no by my power, because I don't have any, but by Your Spirit, Lord. You can do this. See, these returners from captivity, they needed their confidence to be in God for the fight that they couldn't avoid. Even there, they were going to be attacked again. And they were going to have to trust that God could bring the victory. Listen, here's again what the Bible says about this fight, not just against our own competing desires in our hearts, but also, here's what the Bible says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this, dark, in, in this dark place, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is why we are commanded to fight the good fight. The Bible doesn't say avoid the good fight. Avoid the good fight. No, it says fight the good fight. Our fight is not with each other. Our fight as believers is not with unbelievers. Man, if you're being contentious and getting into arguments with unbelievers, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> We don't need to be defenses or contentious. We just simply need to speak the truth in love and not bow down, not cower. Be humble, be confident in what God says. But no, you have an enemy who often lives in my printer on Sunday morning and who seems to make Sunday getting to church the hardest thing to do in the world. And seems to, to give you every opportunity to feed all those evil desires you want, but seems to block every opportunity for the good that you need. This is the battle that we're in. People of God, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. What happens? I love this last bit here. 
We all know the story of David and Goliath, right? Famous story. David the young shepherd boy goes out to bring some cheese sandwiches to his brothers who are on the battlefield. They're on the battlefield, but they're not going to go up against just Goliath because Goliath is nine feet tall. He's a monster. He's huge. And everyone in Israel is afraid to fight him. And he's defying Israel. Hey, come on. Bring it on. <laughs> if you're God so mighty, come fight me. And they're all afraid to fight. David's with a cheese sandwich just going, hey, who's going to fight him? Hey, shut up, David. No one's going to fight him. We don't know what we're going to do. David says, no, 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 no. God's on our side. Why would we not? God's, God can beat this guy. So David goes down there with five smooth stones, one for Goliath, four for his brothers. Five smooth stones, and he says, you know what? You defy my God, but my God's going to take you out. Thunk. Goliath falls. David chops off his head and says, done. Was David such a great warrior? No, he had such a great God. Now, here's the interesting thing. Giants still existed. And so, David's been a giant killer, but what happens? The giants got cousins. Look at verse 4. Now, it happened after the war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which Sivakai, the uh, Hushethite, killed, whatever that guy's name is, who was one of the sons of the giants, and they were subdued. But then what does it say? Verse 5. Again, there was a war with the Philistines. And Elhanah, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Another giant. Verse 6. Yet again, there was a war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature with 24 toes, fingers and toes, six on each hand, six on each foot. All those toes. They might have got toe-main poisoning. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to throw that one out there. It's a bad, that's, a, that's a pastor joke. I've got to use them occasionally. Okay, it's bad. All right, anyway. So what happens, right? He, this guy was born to a giant. So it says in verse 7, So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. See, here, here's the last thing we need to understand about why, or what God provides for us through the battles of our king. Because Jesus has won our battles, but he still calls us to fight, doesn't he? And why does he call us to fight? Because through that, God is developing in us perseverance. The hardest bit about the Christian life is just keeping going. Just keep going. How do we slay giants? Well, first of all, Jesus has already slayed the main giant. Amen. But we become giant slayers as we follow him who is the giant slayer. We learn to face the stuff that's before us, not because we're so victorious, we're so grand. We say, God, if you did this for David, you can do this for me. Jesus, if you did this for us positionally, you can do this for us now practically as we face these things. Interesting, the author of Chronicles will say way later on in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. Here's what he'll say, and I'll close with this. He says, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Hey, I, I, don't, have, I don't know the specifics of the battles that you've been facing this week. Some of them I know. You guys have asked me for prayer and we're praying with you. But I know you're going through battles. 
Because you have, if you're a Jesus follower, you have within you the desires that are your natural evil, evil desires that we all have, and you have these new desires that Jesus has given you, and there's a conflict there. There's a battle there. And we have an enemy that even when you're, you feel like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you feel like you're enjoying the Lord, things still come against you over and over again that you just aren't sure where they come from. Why? Because we have an enemy, an unseen enemy. A demon horde, literally, that wants to destroy us and keep us from being effective for Jesus. Or if you're not a believer, he wants to keep you from believing in Jesus. I don't know what battle that you're going through specifically, but I do know your battle belongs to God. And I do know that he sent the king to win for us. We can trust the king. His name is Jesus. If you are here today and you're not yet a Jesus follower, the, all the talk about you being an enemy of God is not meant to be an insult. We are all enemies of God before Jesus takes over our lives. But as I said before, I say again, the Lord is offering you a hand of friendship, a condition of peace. The condition is you put your faith in Jesus' death for you and his resurrection for you. That's the condition of peace. Won't you do that today? What's stopping you from doing that today? Why not just pray to him today? You say, I don't know how to pray. You know what? The words you use aren't as important as the heart that you have and the one that you're praying to. If you're praying to the God, the creator of the universe, if you're praying to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you believe that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead, and you ask him to save you, he will. He will bring you into his family. Yes, it'll start a new war in your life, but he'll give you the strength to win that battle. And Father, I pray that you would help us as Jesus followers to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves to you and know that the enemy will flee. We know he'll come back, but Lord, we know he'll flee. We pray you'd help us to just simply walk by faith, to believe that what you've done through your death and resurrection is enough. It supplies all that we need and, and everything that we need, the Holy Spirit's going to apply to our lives as we simply walk with you in relationship by faith. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to have each other's backs. And I pray, Lord, again, for those here who may not know you, Lord, Lord, may they be willing to ask the questions that there are keeping them from believing. May they be willing, if they have no more questions, to humble themselves and submit to you and receive you as Lord and King. Lord, we commit these things to you, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.